Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 174 of the Speaking Club podcast. In keeping with the theme of this week's show, here's a couple of finance jokes which made me chuckle from First Alliance Credit Union. And I'll add a link to them as they have quite a few more money jokes that might make you smile. Here we go. Uber lost over a billion dollars in the last six months. So they're asking their drivers to check between the seat cushions. A bank is a place that will lend you money if you can prove that you don't need it. Ain't that the truth? I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Well, hey there. I hope you're well and enjoying the start of summer. As you know, I'm on the road at the moment and currently I'm in Loo in Cornwall. That's the place called Loo with an E, not a toilet in Cornwall. It's lovely here and we've been to some gorgeous places. I, I really actually love Loo, which is a beautiful seaside fishing town. And we've been to Polpero, which is a super quaint fishing village. And just on Sunday, we were down in Plymouth. And I must say that whilst I was in Plymouth, I was lucky enough to get on a brand new comedy tour. Three comedians, including the lovely Christian Russell Pollock, who has been my guest on the show before, have started a new venture and it was fab. I learned so much about the local culture that you could never find on Google and I laugh my socks off. I'll put a link in the show notes to their tour and if you're ever near Plymouth in the UK, I'd recommend it. And it's family friendly too. Just like the speaking club. I've got my bleeper at the ready to keep the podcast family friendly. Okay, so on today's show, I'm talking to Ian Cahill. Ian is a qualified accountant with over 30 years experience creating and investing in businesses, as well as providing financial mentoring to other business owners. And he's on a mission. In the early 90s, Ian started a company in the catering industry with his sister, and a while later, he took a break to take his accountancy exams. But when he returned, the company had run into financial trouble and Ian had to find a way to pay off the debts, a significant proportion of which were overdue tax payments. Having just studied taxation and the opportunities available to big organisations to make them work in their favour, Ian wondered if small businesses could adopt the same approach. This set him off on a mission one which not only salvaged the reputation of his first company, but led him to identifying what he calls the 4% mindset, which is at the heart of what he does today and the market-disrupting businesses he's created. Ooh, let's find out more, shall we? Welcome to the Speaking Club, Ian Cahill. Thank you very much, Sarah, and I'm delighted to be here. Well, it's great to have you on, and I'm really... It's an interesting uh, opinion, insight, what you're going to share with people today that I think they won't have heard before. So let's let's kick this off and say, can you share your mission? 
and yeah. why you believe it's important. Brilliant. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, I, 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 I'm driven by this concept of the 4% mindset, Sarah. And where does 4% come from? Well, the statistics we see out there, 4% of the world seems to control 80% of the wealth. Pareto principle, if you pare it down, you know, 4% of people seem to be doing better than 96% of people. So it's a question that I asked myself a long, long time ago is, you know, is there a way to make really, really good business decisions, financial decisions and personal decisions? And is there a mindset that goes with that? So that's been a journey I've gone on now for over 30 years. And the background to it started with, I ran a catering business with my sister back in the early 90s. So I'm kind of aging myself here a little bit. Um, and we hit some financial difficulties, which probably holds a bit of, uh, of accord with people in the current circumstances. And, and it happens very frequently. Um, and purely by luck, fluke, chance, I happened to be studying my um, my taxation exams in accountancy. And so everything around taxation was fresh in my mind. And in the catering industry, and I'm sure those of you who listen in that space understand, it's, a, it's one of the most difficult industries to survive in, let alone thrive in. And part of that is because it's so labor intensive and because of the way that the things like the VAT system is set up, you are all of the time paying money to the Inland Revenue or in my case, the Times, the Irish Revenue Authorities, particularly around VAT and around PAY and PRSI. So in this particular circumstances, I had taken time out of the business to do my exams. When I came back financially, the business really was in a poor state. But interestingly, a lot of the, the debt that we owed was owed to the, uh, the revenue authorities, the tax authorities. And I was able to understand the tax rules to be able to speak to my accountant that we employed to see if we could use the tax rules to our advantage. So taking a set of rules that are there for everyone to use, but see if there's a way we could make those work to help us out of the difficulty we were in. So I made a proposal to my accountant. He, he understood it and got it. We put that into place. Um, we traded things around. Ironically, we fired most of the staff and I became the chef. So I cooked breakfast, lunch and dinner for about six months to trade out of it. Um, I borrowed about £4,000 from the bank to pay off the last creditors. And I walked away from the business after about seven months, having cleared everybody out. But the, the, the ignominy of it was the very last bill I got was from my accountant for £1,200 to say, you now owe me this. And when I went to meet him and pay him, he made a statement that has forever stuck in my mind, which was, Ian, I'd never have thought about that solution for your business. Uh, and I, I realized the point, and I said to Carl, I said, Carl, if you hadn't thought about it and I hadn't thought about it, our business was going to be in far more trouble as a consequence of it. And that has stuck with me to this very day, Sarah. So the fact that you know, I was reliant on the expert it just so happened I happened to have the expertise, but realize if the expert was going to come up short on that, then it was going to have a very detrimental effect to me, my business, and my business partner at the time. So that forever has stayed in my mind. Everything over the last 30 years that I've been trying to do is to find better questions, better answers, and better solutions around that theme of, is there a better way to make these things work? Hope that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So how would you define the 4% mindset? 
Okay, there, there's, a, there's a couple of really good statistics, and, and I, I try to write a book on it, but I, I have struggled. Um, I wrote a book back in 2009, and, and I, I thought I could write one again, but I haven't quite got the frame of mind for it. So we're going to change the ethos a little bit. So if you look at the, the statistics that are out there, and I'm going to pick Apple as an example, because we all know Apple as this big, large, American successful organization. And Apple have been in the news over the last recent years for an effective corporation tax rate of about 1.9% paid through Irish corporations in particular. So Irish, Ireland has been a particular favourite for a lot of people. So people go and say, well, Apple should pay their fair, fair uh, level of taxes. And, and that's, that's a point of view I won't get into today. But what's very interesting is at the same time that Apple is paying about a 1.9% corporation tax, based on statistics, by the way, that's not 100%, but based on statistics, in the UK, systemically, Irish or sorry, UK companies overpay corporation tax between eight and nine billion every year. Now, that's an extraordinary statistic that systemically, UK corporations overpay tax. Now, it doesn't make sense to me why that's the case, um, and I can only assume that it suits a narrative of the system, and I, and I mean that this system, the idea that, you know, uh, UK government's delighted because they're getting more tax than they should be getting. Business owners don't realise that they're, that they're overpaying this tax. But could you imagine what UK corporations could have done with in the last two years if they retained 17 billion worth of overpayment of taxes? And my driver isn't about taxation, by the way. My driver is about the fact that somebody who's got a 4% mindset is somebody who's ingrained in the community they're employing locally, they're buying off suppliers locally, and they're the people who are sponsoring the under nines football jersey of your local club, which is something that the Apples and the Amazon simply won't do because they can't reach at a local level. So what I'm trying to do with people is that, look, if we ask better questions and if we know how to make better financial, business, personal decisions, we've got more resources to give back locally to communities. And the impact of COVID is going to be extreme. I mean, we're coming out of furlough in the UK. We're coming out of its equivalent uh, right across the world. And so we don't yet know what the real effect of COVID is going to be at a community level. Um, and there have got to be people in a position locally to give back and help to make sure we rebuild communities as quick as we possibly can. And that for me is a big, big driver. So somebody with a 4% mindset is very much about a community mindset. They're about, as I say, they're successful locally business-wise, they employ, they sponsor, they get involved in local communities. And the more resources that they can keep out of the activities they do, the more we can give back. Yeah, I think you've also said to me in the past that it's it's not thinking like a small company. It's, it's thinking like that big business. Because um, if, we, if we have a small company mindset, we, if we're on our own, we kind of miss out on a lot of stuff. And, you know, there's things that big corporations do that I think you want small businesses to have access to, to start thinking like in that way. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, think, I, I think one of the main differences that I've identified, and it's, again, it's my opinion here, so I recognize that, is that, you know, Apple, Google, Facebook, any of the large organizations that we know by name, they have a, their guiding responsibility is to their shareholders first. That's the way in which they operate. So 
They also have what I call capacity. They've got the resources to get the very best information, whether it's going to be guidance on HR, it's going to be guidance on taxation. But at the end of the day, they're driven by the need to make sure that, that the, they, the very best decisions they make impact the shareholders to the best degree they possibly can. Now, there's always been a debate about Wall Street against Main Street and all that stuff that we're aware of. But in, a, in the small business community, and I've seen it because I'm part of it, and I, I, run, I have run and founded small businesses over the last 30 years, we don't put the owner in the center of decision making. We put them almost on the periphery. And what I mean by that is, is that you know, all of the, the rhetoric we hear about is about the customer, and I, and I agree the customer is very important. The employee is very important. Uh, paying uh, taxes is very important. In this case, overpaying taxes seems to be the norm. And, and I'll get to that bit in a second. But at no stage do we sit there and go and say, the reason why I founded and run a business is to make sure that I, as the principal shareholder, have the very best advantage I can for me and what I choose to do in the community sitting there. So I've had debates with um, with lots and lots of professionals. And, and one of the things you hear is, well, let's not push the envelope too hard on our tax planning because we really don't want the ire of HMRC or an equivalent tax authority coming down with us. I'm going, well, nobody wants to be in the wrong place, but we do have the right to figure out how to not overpay $9 billion a year worth of corporation tax. And yet... When I go, when I sit on network events, when I get involved in debates, finance rarely features anywhere in a conversation. It's all about social media. It's all about the, all the stuff around business growth, but never about business management. And, and I think at its core, there's a huge lack of financial literacy out there. And I think that's, that's actually designed by the system to be that way. So we don't get educated about finance when we're in school. We get little or none of it when we're in college. And then the bits that we get a hold of it through our accountants tend to be based around compliance and not around planning. Yeah, because, I mean, I've heard this before, that you know, there is a vested interest in us having a clear path from you know, employment to retirement and not you know, thinking a little bit outside the box and becoming a master of our own destiny because it doesn't serve the system for us to be doing that in some ways. You're, you're dead right. The, the, the one thing that's changing that narrative, and this is kind of where it gets really interesting. So I've spent the last two years trying to build businesses that I, I, I use the term badly, you know, all about business hacks, ways that we can be smarter about how we approach business and grow and be successful. So uh, one of those is in the reward space. Uh, and the other is in the travel space. And um, not because I want to be a travel agent, but because there's a way that we can save substantially on the cost of travel, which is direct cost on our businesses and, and our personal lives, which directly affects us financially. And, and, and we can go into that, if you like, in a minute or two. But the big challenge to that comment you've made is that cryptocurrencies and the whole area about deregulation is substantively challenging exactly what you've made it a statement. So we're seeing two or three different parallel, I'm going to say wars taking place. We're seeing, you know, Main Street against online e-commerce and the destruction of, of 
bricks and mortar retail, bricks and mortar catering, you know, uh, social fabric around pubs and and restaurants and those things. You hope they come back, but it, there's no certainty in it. And you're seeing the war between, you know, deregulated finance or DeFi and the mainstream banking communities. And that's a war that's going to take place the next three or four years. It's incredible to watch. It has huge opportunities for, for agile businesses. It has major threats for old-fashioned businesses. But actually, uh, I think if, if people are smart enough to, to, to wake up to the education that can come with that, it's a major reset that's very positive. Excellent. Okay. So you had this business. You walked away from it after educating your accountant. And then you, basically... It, what I got from you is that for the next 30 years, you've almost become a, you know, you hear the word serial entrepreneur bandied around. Um, but, but I think that's in essence what you were doing, running uh, businesses, creating businesses. Well, to, to be fair, no, I, I, there was a point. So after that first business, so that was my first major soiree in and, and um, I, I did what every good middle-class educated person did. I went and joined large corporations. So um, I did uh, I did a little over nine years with GE Capital, which were at the time one of the largest in the world. And, and well, you know, it got ingrained in all the theory about Jack Welch and how to run businesses and all that kind of stuff. And, and it was great until I realized that politically I could never fit into the fabric of a large organization. I, I mean, to the point where... Um, I, I used the wrong expletive to the head of credit for, for Europe over a proposal I thought he got wrong as a decision. And so that probably numbered my days. Um, and, you know, subsequently we were both right, but that's that's a different story. So uh, I then went and I was doing an MBA in Henley at the time. And they say about an MBA, you do one of two things. you You change job or you change career. So the first element was I moved from... GE Capital to GMAC Bank and, and was and got headhunted to set up a European leasing business for them and then realized that actually running from one large, large corporate to another wasn't where my bent was. It was more I needed to change. Um, as I say, I need to put the, the ladder on a different wall. Um, so I, I literally took the opportunity to come back down into the whole area dealing in financial services, private clients, working for very specialist organizations. And that's where the eureka moment. So, so the the idea that the accountant said I'd never have thought about it. I actually spent time then working with um, specialists in this area who said, "Look, if you have a, a tax law, for example, it has two sides of the equation. It says one thing, and by default, it doesn't say the other. And so, when you understand there's two sides of the story." Actually, when you've, you know, they say change perspective and you see it from a different, from a different angle. So, and I don't know what an example at the minute, I'd have to think something up, but, but what opened my eyes up to was there's the rule. So the rule can be interpreted in more than one way. And when you train to be an accountant, as I had been, we were taught to use the rules as a means of calibration and calculation. And when I joined this organization, we were taught to use the rules as a means of planning. Uh, and there are two different aspects of the same thing. And I don't, I don't know if that's clear enough. Yeah, so um, the differences between checks and balances versus strategic use of the rules Precisely. to maximise 
uh, retain profit potentially. Precisely, and and that's what that's what large organisations do. They say, "There's the rule book. Let's make sure that we are on side with the laws and the regulations, but we will not pay any pen, penny more than we should have to." And and that means that they are prepared to stand over the decision making that they make. Now, the the big difference is is that they're paying for this. And therefore, they're getting one-on-one very specialist advice about their own piece of planning. The, the, the challenge in the financial services industry, and I think it's back to your point about this linear graph between cradle to grave, mm. is the sheer fact that it's the law of large numbers. Your accountant is dealing with three, four, five hundred people. You know, you get five-minute windows you know, twice, three times a year. It could be VAT return is due, Sarah. Please send the information to your year-end accounts are due, Sarah. Give us access through your accounting platform if you have one. Um, And yet, you deserve more than five minutes because your entire livelihood depends on this thing. So that need for much, much more granular approaches. And, and without denigrating, I, um, I was looking at, a, at an Instagram, sorry, a, a LinkedIn post this morning. And this particular person was talking about her approach to financial planning and said, I'll give you an hour a year to review your plans. I'm going, an hour a year? Wow, does that really mean so little? <laughs> and yet it's so important to my life. And, and I know the post was meant well, but actually it's a systemic about the whole process. We become a, a number. We, we don't, you know, when your pension is with a large institution, you become a statistical number. And it's very difficult for that to become personal enough to matter for most people when it comes to planning. And um, the thing is this, right? So, if I was listening to this, I would be saying, oh, so it must be Ian helps people with their tax planning. But that's not what you do, is it? You've obviously got a view about this, which is people should have access to better advice equivalent to the the set, you know, the same caliber of, of people that um, big corporations do. But what essentially you've done, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you've created some vehicles for people to benefit from some of the uh, tax advantages that big corporations do. Is that right or is that wrong? Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. And, um, you know, so one of the vehicles, so we've been building out a platform called GWARDS. It's uh, G-E-W-A-R-D-Z. So I couldn't get the S when you go looking for names. So I put the Z. So it makes it look a little bit more funky. And the G, because we want to be the Google of the rewards world. That's kind of where the GWARDS came from. So we started out going, what's one of the very basic pieces of, of strategy that a small business owner could use that would emulate what a large company does? So 90% of large companies in the US use reward programs. They use it to thank their existing customers. They use it as an inducement to earn new customers. And also they use it to thank people who refer customers to them. So something we all expect when we go into Tesco's, um, you know, we carry our club cards and, and the, the person when we're checking out says, if you got your club card handy, Sarah, don't forget your Tesco's point. Yet at an SME level, and particularly at a B2B level, we, we don't even put it on a radar of thinking. And to me, it doesn't make sense. But actually, 
from a little quirk point of view, rewards is one of those small little tax advantages that people don't realize. So when I get those Tesco's club card points, it isn't taxable. So whether I spend them on, you know, subscriptions for magazines, convert them to pay part of my gas bill, it's a little reward coming back. That's a little thank you that people don't realize. Now, if you take that one idea and you brought it into your business and you looked at the top 20% of your customers who usually are responsible for 80% of the income that you have, what happens if you lose one or two of those customers? What's the impact to your business? So when was the last time you said thank you in a very smart way? And that was the start of what G Ward set out to do is that let's do what Let's do what large organizations do. Let's look at rewards as an inducement. And, and the tagline we have is, if we reward, we retain. And if we retain, we grow. Um, that's, in, that's now become, we now do it for, for employees as well, for our, for our clients. Because again, retention of employees is a very important thing that's happening. And then secondly is, we have found great members of GWARDS who have great services that our customers can benefit from. Now, it's not by accident. I do go out to search these out. I want to find very smart people who can help with taxes, who can help with you know, things like understanding cryptocurrency, not because I want to suggest for one minute you go and blow your money in cryptocurrency, but actually blockchain banking, the way we're going to be positioned in the next two to five years is going to be very important for most business owners to know. And I'm, I'm a great believer if I can't find a solution, I create it. That's part of the issue I have about being an entrepreneur. So we started as simply being a rewards platform. We're now a B2B platform. Yes, our anchor is in the reward space, but also we bring and introduce members to other member services that we believe can add very significant value. And I say that because I test them myself. So R&D tax credits is a great example. Um, there's, a start, there's a business in the UK now uses GDPR as a tax planning tool. I know because I've used them. So we look to bring these into this to, to the right people, the right mindset going, I want to make a difference. I want to keep more. I want to do more. And that's what GWARDS is anchoring itself as. And then if you think I get it right, clearly I don't because we started looking at travel back in November of 19 going, that's a great idea because it's a $1.9 trillion industry sure we'll, we'll make hay so we, we spent the last 15 months building out a private members travel club and and it's not because i want to be a high polite going you want to be part of my special gang there within the travel community you know the wholesale prices the prices on which everybody margins up uh, isn't allowable to the general public through the normal course of access through you know online research etc but we discovered that if you put it into a private members club, we can then make those wholesale prices available to, to members. So GWARDS, ironically enough, now uses a travel club as part of its rewards platform. Why? Because if, a, if a, an employer can give a benefit of a travel club membership to an employee and they can save on their holidays, it's a very nice way for a win-win. So again, we kind of eat our own cooking. It's stuff we do ourselves, but the, I think their ideas worth people exploring and understanding. And I think they can make a difference because 
for the previous seven years to COVID, uh, I spent a huge amount of time tra traveling. US, um, UK, and then into the Middle East. And I know what I spent on travel. And when I back-tested some of that travel against a travel club, I try not to cry very often. But I, I do know that the savings would have been very substantive. That's really interesting. So we've done some work together on the travel side, and I can see it's amazing uh, benefits there for people and savings and stuff. And I love this idea of being able to if effectively, as a group, leverage and get more than if you can on your own. So I guess it'd be interesting. I want to talk about a bit more about GWAD. So what sort of difference has, has it been making to entrepreneurs and small businesses having access to this, this offer that they can make to people? Because effectively, it's, it's like a, you, you have it as a reward for customers, but there's also the other side of it, which is about referrals, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the, there are probably three substantive examples that I can use. So the first of those is um, one of our first clients we acquired uh, runs a couple of, of small hardware shops. And he, he identified both a need and a challenge he had in his business. So uh, using, again, I use Pareto, that 80-20, which is, you know, 20% of our customers generally give us 80% of our income. And that, that kind of runs through no matter what area you're involved in. But he, he realized that he couldn't afford to put a sales guy on the road to be able to service these guys and his top 20% of clients on a regular basis. But he was also concerned that his nearest competitor may try and do that. So he came to us and said, can you manage a reward program for us that's a little bit different? And we said, of course we can. He effectively, a bit like anything else, gives a 3% rebate back every month on what they purchase. And then, you know, at the end of the year, we accumulate these as reward points. At the end of the year, his customers are then able to cash in those reward points and, and spend them anywhere that takes Visa globally. So it's not about a bottle of wine or it's not restrictive in terms of what they do the customer is able to decide how it is they want to be to reward themselves almost now we started running that in june of last year um, and at the end of the year one of his largest uh, customer i think was able to to get a little over two and a half thousand points which was very very nice to get and so they were very appreciative about what christmas looked like but the statistically, he was telling me that as a consequence of that, in quarter one of 2021, he, he overall, those top 20% of clients were up over a 15% in terms of their spend. Now, that's a hell of a result. And not only that, but he knows that the wallet share that they have, he's getting more of it because they're being appreciated and rewarded for what they're doing. So that was, so that was one version of, of what happened. The second side of it then, and you know, I keep talking about SME and, 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 and you know, SME businesses, but actually we ended up winning a, a, a small contract uh, between Intel and Dell where we, we got asked to help them find a way to reward, um, to, to, to co-reward people who are employees in both those organizations. And, and because our, our methodology was very simple to use, very simple to roll out, um, in fact, we ended up doing a very nice little program with them. And, and that gave us great validity for our business because even though we're, I, I talk about trying to compete with them and, and be like them, you like to be validated too so you know you've arrived in some description. And the third side of it then, uh, and it's with our own 
two-tier travel uh, travel club is that we want to give back. So everybody can join two-tier travel just as an affiliate and sell our story without becoming a member. And every time they sell, we give back a portion of the sales proceeds to the affiliate. Now, the fact that we can do that through a rewards platform means that it's much more efficient for the, for the uh, recipient. And also it's much more efficient for us in terms as a way to be able to reward and thank people. So um, I don't build ideas unless I use them myself. And we did that so that as many people can benefit from the good news as possible. A, a referral program is a great idea until you go to execute it, because now you've got invoices and VAT issues and all that stuff taking place that you don't have through reward programs. And so it's that efficiency that I think is very important. Brilliant. And so, and so if you were a B2B customer um, and you had a referral program, let's say you, know, you, had, you were a course creator or a coach or a consultant small business owner, and you were using GWARDS to, to incentivize you know, referrals, those points are non-taxable for the person receiving them. That goes back to your club card points, doesn't it? Yeah, correct. Yeah. I mean, it's the same methodology that Tesco's club cards that everybody else has. So re- rewards, when they're properly managed and properly done, are a very, as you say, tax-efficient way to be able to allow people to be rewarded. Absolutely. And funnily enough, I was traveling... Uh, in towards work this morning and I looked at a very big billboard and it was a, a financial institution offering 3% back when you take out a mortgage. And, and I know you and I talked about your own fun with the mortgage side of it, but wouldn't it be nice to know that if, if they can give 3% back and it not be taxable, that you can do the same thing in your business capacity for your, both your customers and your referral parties? Absolutely. Yeah. And we'll put a link in the show notes to for people to go and check out GWARDS and how they can use it in their own business and also to tier travel. I guess the interesting thing about this is it, it can be quite contentious. It's it's quite in some senses, it's quite a lot of education that you need to do in order for people to get the point of, you know, to understand it. Um, when you've managed that, have you have you come across objections still? I'm interested in, you know, what's the biggest objection you come across and how do you handle that in terms of your messaging? Um, yeah, so if we do the two-tier travel piece first, that's very easy because, you know, we we don't make any booking fees or commissions when our members join and book travel. So it's extremely transparent. And therefore, the only thing I've ever asked people to do is come and take a demonstration. Because, you know, if I go to a networking event and say, look, I can show you a four-star hotel for the first week in Dubai that our members can get for £270 that one of the biggest online booking engines will charge you £1,000 for exactly the same hotel. And the guys go, I don't believe it's possible. And I go, brilliant, let me show you. All right. Uh, So that's very easy and great fun and doesn't matter where you go. And of course, we all love pretty pictures about travel, irrespective of where we are right now. On on the, 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 the reward side, yes, there's a bit more education going. Is it, How is it possible? What does it look like? Well, the, the great thing about when you talk about rewards is it's very, the, the, the tax code's very prescribed. And not only is, is it very prescribed, but it's been well challenged. And there's plenty of documented evidence the challenges that are taking place. So when you know that, it's just about them opening up and understanding that actually, you know, we're following a set of rules that sit there. And, and again, optics is brilliant. You, you never ask Tesco's anything about their club card parts. You never ask um, 
you know, uh, insomnia coffee or Costa coffee or Pret a Manger about, you know, buy six coffees, get the seventh free. So why should we challenge it in a B2B environment? Uh, just because it's not, it's antithesis to how we're led to believe to run a business doesn't mean it isn't, it isn't possible. Okay, cool. And so I guess the question I was interested in next is how does, because we're on the speaking club, how does speaking fit into your marketing of these companies? I mean, effectively, you're continually networking, aren't you? Do you do yeah. any bigger talks? No, I, I, I haven't for a long time. I mean, you know, I've done a few four and a half thousand person in, in the audience podiums once or twice in the past. And, and so I, I used to be averse to it. I'm a great believer those who can do, those who can't teach. And, and there was an awful danger that I was stemming into those who can't teach environments. So part of that for, for, for setting up G-Wards and for getting quite focused in two-tier was, let's be at the center of everything that I need to learn. Let's make the mistakes the same way everybody else does. Because when you're large corporates, you're insulated from most things. When you're in the founding entrepreneurial stage, you're at the core of everything. And that's mm-hmm. good and bad. And so for me, it's very much about saying, look, um, one of the things I said about lockdown is, I wonder could you build a multi-million pound business while you're in lockdown? We chose travel. So ironically, that probably will be either the best idea ever or the most stupid thing I'm ever going to face. But I, I think if we take contrarian thinking, the time we hit September, we're 18, 19 months old. We do have a couple of hundred members. We have proved the model out. And so we're very well positioned. Um, I think by doing that, it would allow me the opportunity to then stand the stage and talk more about this because I've done it as opposed to talked about doing it. So I, I needed to be able to go back and prove the point, Sarah. And it, it, I, I know when I'm ready, if I've proven it, if I haven't, then it's been a great journey, but something has to happen at that point, you know? <laughs> I'm with you and I'm with you. Absolutely. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to almost walk the walk before you talk the talk. And yeah, that's, that's what you're doing. Yeah. You're dead right. And, and every piece of, of stuff that we bring on to G-Wards is vetted because I've used it. So I, I'm, I'm the guinea pig in all of this. And by being the guinea pig, it becomes experiential learning, not theory. That's been the mantra for the last 30 years. It's got me into lots and lots of, you know, good stories, bad outcomes. I could tell you forever what's gone on there. But at the end of it, it means that, it, you know, if I am in a conversation with somebody, it isn't theory. That's, that's the core of this thing. Nice, nice. I like it. Cool. So before we um, share some of those details uh, so that people can come and find out more about you, more about GWORS, Tutir and everything that you're working on, I have some standard questions yeah. that I'd like to ask you. We may have covered this, we may not. Is, this is the Speaking Club. What's the best thing that speaking has done for you so far? I think it's at the core of everything. Um, so for me, I was part of a, back in oh, school days, uh, I, I was part of a debating club. And the very first time I went for my first debate, I froze. I, I absolutely uh, made a mess of it. And, and the reason being is I had my, my cheat notes and I was reading for Badham and all those things and I froze and I just missed a page. And my learning out of that was always remember Nobody knows what your next sentence was, and therefore there's never a mistake to be made. And that's allowed me, as I say, I've done speeches to up to four and a half thousand people. Um, but when it comes to networking and when it comes to fundamental of sales, you know, having a script 
but not being overprescribed is a really, really good way to be because it, it, you can trust yourself and trust your mind to come up with the right answer. And what it also means is that you're able to listen to the customer and you're able to hear what it is they're trying to say as opposed to be stuck trying to remember what you were supposed to say next. So that for me is, yeah, it's great to be able to speak publicly and stand on stages, but it's also hugely important to take that knowledge into a one-to-one environment. Absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I absolutely love that because, you know, you, you craft a talk, but let go of the script so that you can stay present. And also most of the time it's your lived experience. So you're the expert. So I, yeah, some really uh, great points there. And you covered off the, the second point, which I was going to ask you, which is about your worst speaking gig. Presumably that was the one where you lost your place or has there been others? Yeah, well, actually the four and a half thousand people, um, the one thing I would say is possibly do a dress rehearsal. <laughs> uh, and I say that because um, I, I didn't know the audience was going to be that big or the stage was going to be that large. And so um, I didn't realize that at the front down below me, I could see a copy of the slides I was going through. And so I had a couple of moments where I didn't know which way to turn, which way to look. I was trying to make it up, and, and it, that could have been a very Pitong moment. But thankfully, I then realized where it was. So I would suggest run through a dress rehearsal. Absolutely. Another golden nugget there for people. We talk about that often, but that's exactly why. So at least you have a, you have a heads up on what, what's going to happen and stuff like that. That's brilliant. Okay, cool. Right, next question. Uh, what is the book that's had most impact on your life and why? Oh, with, without doubt, Think and Grow Rich Grow by rich. Napoleon Hill. Without a doubt. I mean, it's, you know, that's a, that's a Bible. It, it sits by my bed. It travels with me. It gets underlined. And every time I lose my way, I go back and remember what is your definite purpose? Because that's what's got to drive all of us. Um, so that's a Bible I'd recommend to anybody. And, I, you know, I, I recommend it to my kids. I think I'm too old for them to listen to, but I kind of hope it's a Bible to take on board as well. That's cool. It's a brilliant book and definitely it, it, the wisdom in it is amazing considering it, it was written a little while ago as well. So it's fantastic. I keep saying 1928 and I get getting corrected by my son who has read it. So it was 1927, but actually Napoleon Hill wrote the, the success principles back in 1928, which is, I think, is the precursor to most modern day self, um, self-confidence, self-awareness, self-teaching. Absolutely. If you haven't read it, do go and read it and I'll put a link into the show notes for that as well. Okay, what's the best bit of business advice you've had and why? Best bit of business advice is my accountant telling me I would never have made that solution. It it became one of the foremost eureka moments and drivers for all I've done. But I bet it was hard paying that bill. Yeah, it it was a bit cheeky because I walked into the bank and I asked them to lend me £4,500 um, and then I literally jumped on a bus with a shirt and went and got a job working for Woodchester Bank or it became GE Capital. Um, and I thought I was clear. And then, as I say, this £1,200. And, and I, I nearly went in to, um, you know, to have a go. And I said, I'm going to call this my, my mini MBA moment. And so we go learn from that. Excellent. See the positive. That's brilliant. OK, last question. If you could have one mentor... And they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional. Who would you choose and why? Brilliant question. So I, I'm going to exclude Napoleon Hill only because he, he's had a bit of a go. I, I, I have to say, I think it's Thomas Edison. And I think it's because, you know, everyone, 
whether it's 10,000 times to get the, the light bulb right or not, it, it was his comment that says, I found 9,999 9, ways not to do it. No matter where we are, we need to be persistent. And it's, and it's understanding how to achieve that persistence, to my mind, is, is really the core of this thing sitting here. And, and somebody told me something very interesting about him. And, you know, um, my biggest moments come at this sort of, sort of not quite awake phase first thing in the morning. I let the thing drift. And apparently he had a knack for being able to switch off midday for 30 seconds and get this subconscious calling, which is why he became so successful. It's, it's a skill I'd love to learn. I don't think the patience, but someday we might get there. Wow, that's really interesting. Well, listen, Ian, thank you so much for sharing this new way of thinking for small businesses and also, you know, the ideas and stuff behind the businesses that we created. Good luck with it. Now, where is the best place for people to go to find out more about you and about the companies and how they can benefit from these things? Yeah, great. Um, and so uh, I think we've got the HTTPS one uh, and Gwords, G-E-W-A-R-D-Z, because you're trying to be funky.com. Um, and that's for the rewards platform. And again, you know, like, like everything, it's a work in progress, but reach out, fill it in. Let's have a conversation. If it's for you, I'll explain more. And I agree. I, I, I do agree. There's a bit of complexity of thinking, which we'd love to share as part of an education. Uh, two-tier travel is a little bit easier. So that all the W's dot the, the, the number two tier, T-I-E-R, travel.com. And that's because there's two tiers of travel. I was going to make it T-E-A-R-S when people see the savings, but I thought that was going too far. <laughs> nice. Cool. Well, listen, thank you so much. Um, we'll put the links in the show notes to those as well. And uh, do you connect with people on social media at all? Are you on LinkedIn? Yeah, so LinkedIn, yeah, you'll see Ian Caho, the two-tier travel. Um uh, my wife actually is the founder of, of G-Ward, so you'll see her, Fiona Rourke, but you'll, you'll, you'll find me on LinkedIn to two-tier travel to start the process. Perfect. Good. Brilliant. Thank you very much again. And as I say, good luck with everything, Ian. Brilliant. Great to talk to you, Sarah, and thank you very much. I hope you found that enlightening. The question of taxation is always a contentious one, but I can see the logic and benefit behind what Ian is trying to do, which is raise awareness of what might be possible and trying to level the playing field a bit with the companies that he's created. Do go and check them out and see if they might work for you. And if you've got any opinions, I'm sure Ian would love to hear from you too. One important thing to say, and this is a speaking tip here, is that if you speak about something contentious, it is definitely important to have content in your talk to proactively address the stories and beliefs that might be driving the objections people have about your thing. And that's some of the stuff that we work on with members of the Speaking Club Live. It's a place to test out your content and get an objective view on your stuff in a safe and supportive environment. Because the trouble is that often we're just too close to it ourselves to see where the potential issues and people's objections lie. And if you want to find out more about The Speaking Club Live and how it can help you grow your speaking skills, your audience and your business, then go and check it out at saraharcher.co.uk slash club. Well, that's a wrap for this week. Thank you so much for joining me. If you like the show, but you haven't left a rating or review yet, I'd love it if you take a couple of minutes to share your thoughts at ratethispodcast.com. 
com slash tsc and if you take a screenshot of your review or rating and message me i'll send you an e-copy of my book cracking speech mate how to use humor to make yourself an amazing speaker okay i'll be back next week but in the meantime don't forget to grab your life by the nuts and get cracking bye-bye Getting to practice your speaking in front of an audience is a crucial part of testing your message and developing your skills and experience as a speaker. Yet opportunities to do this in the right environment can be hard to find. Add in the chance to get expert feedback and coaching on your content structure and delivery and the opportunities are even fewer. But that's what you'll get as a member of the Speaking Club Live. Each week we'll be focusing on a different aspect of business speaking from pitching to presenting to videos and lives. There'll be hot speak slots and you'll get the chance to practice sharing your message, your storytelling, your humour and all the different aspects of speaking in front of me and other members. Then you'll get feedback and coaching from me and your peers so that you're moving forward on your speaking journey with accountability and support. If you'd like to find out more about how you can become a member of the Speaking Club Live so that you can build your confidence, improve your delivery and become a better speaker, then go to saraharcher.co.uk slash club now.